following Sunday School session is part of our study in the book of Philemon. For more information, visit our website at www.gracepovidencechurch.org. I think over time, one of the things that happens as you're reading more and more and more of the scripture, you start to see all the threads that go from the beginning to end. And at first you see them as little threads. They're sort of randomly there. And you're like, oh, is that really saying that? And then over time, it becomes, these are ropes. These are massive strings that are going through this that God intentionally tied all of these parts together with. I mean, keeping in mind that God is actually God. And he has planned everything. He's actually sovereign. And there's nothing that happens that he doesn't cause or allow to happen. You can't escape the fact that even a topic like this one, slavery, is part of his plan. Mm -hmm. And I know we're recording this, and I know that somebody could listen to this, and I want to make sure everybody understands, I am not promoting slavery. (laughs) I I am not. However, could it be, could it be that God allowed the evil of slavery as a picture of what he would do in buying back the captives. Yes, exactly. So if I can get through this today, I will take us hopefully through to the prophets and particularly spend a little bit of time in Isaiah to show the promises of the Messiah look like on the surface level they're about returning Israel, exiled Israel back to the land. This is before they'd gone into exile. But in fact, it's more than that. Yes, that is part of the prophecy, but the bigger prophecy is that the Messiah is going to come and substitute himself in the place of sinners because they're enslaved to sin. All right, so last time I left you, we had landed on Abraham. And I had mentioned that I was reading through scripture and reading studies on on the words in scripture. And they keep using the word servant, and I was kind of up in the air to you. Do you say servant or do you say slave? And I found this. Um, anybody want to read that? You don't have to read the my little first per, part, but Genesis 21, 8 through 14. When Isaac grew up and was about to be weaned, Abraham prepared a huge feast to celebrate the occasion. But Sarah saw Ishmael, the son of Abraham, and her Egyptian servant, Hagar, making fun of her son, Isaac. So she turned to Abraham and demanded, get rid of the, that slave women and her son. He is not going to share the inheritance with my son, Isaac. I won't have it. Now, I didn't do enough study to see for sure is it a different word there, but the point being, Sarah knew that Hagar was her slave. There there is no doubt in her mind. She tells this woman, you go and have sex with my husband and get a baby, and I'm taking that baby from you and claiming it for myself. I mean, if if nothing else defines slavery for a woman... Being forced to bear someone else's child and then them taking it from you? I mean, this is just awful. But I, I bring that out to say in Scripture, it was called out where Sarah called her a slave. So whether the word servant was used or not, the meaning is clear. They knew these people. They owned them. And that's how they viewed them. Okay, so slavery has <coughs> themes that stretch into all aspects of the story of Israel. Um, In the story of Joseph and his brothers, Joseph is declared by the father to be the favored son. He's got these visions and dreams that show that he's going to be the leader 
of the family, and and the others are going to bow down before him, and that ticks them off. They are so mad because he's one of the younger sons, and all the older ones are like, "What am I? Chopped liver? I'm supposed to get all this stuff, and you're telling me this young guy is going to be in charge?" And they get so upset that they see him coming. He's wearing this special coat that his father had given him. is really very colorful, and back then, you know, colorful threads are expensive, and he only gave it to one son. Now. Whether that was right or wrong for uh, Jacob to do is not the end of the story here, but these guys saw him coming from a great deal ways off, and they said, let's take this guy and kill him. So they see a big pit. It's a cistern, kind of a well, and they grab him, and they throw him in the well. And uh, they think, well, we'll go down there and kill him. And then one says, well, just leave him there, and he'll die. And then later... One of the brothers says, you know what? He's our blood. Let's not kill him. Let's sell him into slavery. So it says down there um, in verse 28, So when the Ishmaelites, who were uh, Midianite traders, came by, Joseph's brothers pulled him out of the cistern and sold him to them for 20 pieces of silver. And the traders took him to Egypt. Now notice Ishmaelites. So God had made a promise to um, uh, Ishmael, uh, to his mother, that he was going to, and to Abraham, that he would make Ishmael a great people too. So by this time, enough time has, has transpired that there is a whole group of people that are Ishmaelites. So they're related to this set of men by their father, their forefather, Abraham, but they're out there slave trading. That's part of what they do. So they've gone down a road that is unthinkable in when we see later in scripture. But it's not so unthinkable for these guys to say, well, let's, let's sell him. And notice, 20 pieces of silver. So they get loot, and then they fake his death. And meantime, uh, these Midianites, these Ishmaelites, take Joseph to Egypt. And they sell him to Potiphar. Potiphar is a captain of the guards. He's an important guy in Pharaoh's court. And he gets this young slave. And you can read all the stories about what happened in Potiphar's house. It was not pretty, but Joseph was a slave there. He goes through a bunch of adventures where he gets cast into prison. Um, there's prophecies that happen. He doesn't get let out when he hopes to get let out. Years pass uh, with him in, in prison unjustly, and then finally he gets out of prison. And when he gets out of prison, he tells the Pharaoh what's going to happen in the future. And he was right. And the Pharaoh recognizes it and says, I'm making you number two in command. Joseph's number two in command, and everything went along quite nicely for a while. Someone want to read the, that passage there? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Now that your father and brothers have joined you here, choose any place in the entire land of Egypt for them to live. Give them the best land of Egypt. Let them live in the region of Goshen. And if any of them have special skills, put them in charge of my livestock too. And Joseph brought his, brought in his father, Jacob, and presented him to Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. How old are you? Pharaoh asked him. Jacob replied, I have traveled the earth for 130 hard years, but my life has been short compared to the lives of my ancestors. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh again before leaving his court. So they come down to Egypt because there's a famine in the land. And... There isn't food for them up in the land that they're in that God had given them. And they leave and they come down and all the brothers 
all their wives, all their children, their flocks, everything come with them. Roughly 200 people. And uh, Joseph gets to bring his dad in front of Pharaoh. And his dad blesses Pharaoh. And Pharaoh gives him the best of the land. Says, pick whatever you want. I'm, I'm opening up the gates for you. It's yours. Everything's going honky-dory for a while. <laughs> so, time passes. So, you know, by the time this passage we just read, Jacob is 130 years old. So if you guess that he was about 40, maybe 50 when his adult sons uh, went through the whole trial of having to go down to, to Egypt. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got 75 years or so that um, uh, Jacob had had lived. Uh, you know, I'm sorry. He's saying when he got to Egypt, he was 130 <coughs> years old. So that's a long life. But he, he says, not as long as my, my ancestors. Time passes now. Genesis 50. Uh, but Joseph replied, don't be afraid of me. I Am I, am I God that uh, I can punish you? Uh, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He, bought, uh, he brought me to this place so I could save the lives of many people. Okay. No, no, don't be afraid. I will uh, continue to take care of you and your children. So... Uh, he reassured them by speaking kindly to them. So Joseph and his brothers and uh, and their families continued to live in Egypt. Joseph lived to the age of 110. He lived uh, to see uh, three generations of descendants of his son uh, Ephraim. And he lived to see the birth of the children of Manasseh. Uh, Manasseh's sons, uh, whom he changed, uh, uh, claimed, claimed uh, as his own. So Joseph died at the age of 110. The Egyptians, uh, oh him, oh they, they did. They embalmed him. They embalmed him, and his body was placed uh, in a coffin in Egypt. So the Egyptians still honor Joseph. He's lived out his life fully there. He's seen three generations rise up in Egypt. So these are all Hebrews, and people are multiplying, right? That's what's implied here. His children are having children. Their children are having children. He dies. He's given a, an honorable burial. He's probably a mummy somewhere uh, that we don't know of. Um, he did want to go his body to go back to uh, the promised land, mm-hmm. but I don't, I don't know that that necessarily happened, but... The, at least the the Egyptians were so uh, enamored by him that they they honored him with a, a death like a king. All right. So this next one is turning a corner now. So for those of you who just walked in, I was talking earlier on about how the the threads through Scripture are big fat ropes actually, and that the the lines that God's drawn are intentional that go from the beginning to the end. And one of those strands in here is the concept of slavery. It, be careful how I say this. Again, I'm not promoting slavery, but perhaps God allowed the institution of slavery in order to depict our slavery to sin and Christ coming to redeem us from that slavery and set us free. Just like lots of things in life we see, for example, Marriage. Paul goes overt, Holy Spirit goes overt in 
uh, Ephesians chapter 5 and says, I'm talking about marriage, but I'm really talking about Christ and his church. So there are word pictures or visual pictures that God draws for us in the things in life that have spiritual meaning. All right, so now we're turning a hard corner, and we're, we've already seen Joseph was a slave. So that's the first of the Jews to be a slave. And now, this next part. Monica, since you're close and you have good eyes, will you read this chunk of, of scripture here? Um, Exodus 1, 6 through 14. Joseph and his brothers die in Egypt. A new pharaoh panics and enslaves the now numerous Hebrews. In time, or keep going. Yeah, please. In time, Joseph and all of his brothers died, ending that entire generation. But their descendants, the Israelites, had many children and grandchildren. In fact, they multiplied so greatly that they became extremely powerful and filled the land. Eventually, a new king came to power in Egypt knew nothing about Joseph or what he had done, he said to his people, look, the people of Israel now outnumber us and are stronger than we are. We must make a plan to keep them from growing even more. If we don't and war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us. Then they will escape. So the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves. They appointed brutal slave drivers over them, hoping to wear them down with crushing labor. They forced them to build the cities of Pithom and Ramses as supply centers for the, for the king. But the more the Egyptians oppressed them, the more the Israelites multiplied and spread, and the more alarmed the Egyptians became. So the Egyptians worked the people of Israel without mercy. They made their lives bitter, forcing them to mix mortar, uh, mortar. mortar and make bricks and do all the work in the fields. They were ruthless in all their demands. So, everything was happy, hunky-dory when Joseph was alive. He helps Egypt get through this horrible famine and thrive, whereas the nations around them uh, plummeted into despair, and they came to Egypt and bought grain, and Egypt became incredibly wealthy because God blessed them through Joseph. Joseph and his brothers die, and everybody forgets. People's memories are short. And a new king comes along. Ed and I were talking about this last time. It's about 300 years. This new king comes along. He knows nothing about Joseph, which I, I guess in a narcissistic culture like one with a, a pharaoh who thinks he's the son of God, he thinks he's the sun god's son, and he's going to ride around in a chariot carrying the sun himself. Everything's about him. He doesn't know anything about Joseph. They forget all that. And they decide, man, these Hebrews are hardy. They're growing, and they're going fast. And we need to crush them before they realize there are more of them than there are of us, and they take over <coughs> or rebel against us. They didn't want them to escape. Notice that in um, verse 10 at the end. Then they will escape. These guys knew they had a good thing going on. They had all these Hebrews working for them, doing all these things, and they're just sitting around lounging by the Nile. <laughs> and oh, go ahead, Jennifer. I'm curious for that long period of time how the Egyptians and the Israelites were able to, you know, the Egyptians were probably worshiping other false idols, but to live that long in that area and still remain in your own faith is that how the Israelites remain? Well, 
So the pharaoh gave them a big chunk of land when they came down. He said, you picked the choices, and they, and they were shepherds. That's what, there was a whole thing where Joseph tells him, make sure you tell the pharaoh that we're shepherds, because they despise shepherds, and they're not going to want them around them. So whatever piece of land they chose was big enough to run cattle, right? And so it was big enough also to grow your, your people group, and they probably isolated in a ghetto, so to speak, of their, their land, there's not much said in scripture, so I'm in the white space if I start expounding any farther than that. But the Jews thrived there. I mean, many children were born, and um, their replacement rate was much higher than the Egyptians. <laughs> they're, in the, they're in the delta of the river, in yeah. the ocean. So all the soil that washes down from the river has come down to them. They probably have the richest land, the most growable land in the in the whole area. They're probably becoming wealthy too, selling their foods, you know, and they worked uh, an agricultural model and their their children and their families all joined in and they made hay while the sun was up. Eugene. Moses, Moses hadn't really come along at that point, so they really weren't, they really hadn't had their religion solidified or whatever. Okay, uh, you, that's exactly what I wanted to say. Up until this point, there is no law per se. There's a covenant that God made with Abraham. It's a promise that his people will be innumerable. The sign of that covenant is circumcision of the male children. And everybody in the, in the family that was a male was circumcised. That was a distinguishing factor of them. There were no dietary laws. There were no Sabbaths. There, there was no Ten Commandments delivered as such. Now, you could argue that they're innate, that God built them into us, and we know it because we, we get guilty when we sin against him. It's a hard argument to make, though, because later on in the New Testament, we have Paul saying, you know, if it weren't for covetousness being named in the law, I wouldn't have known that I was sinning like that. So there's something about the law that makes sin apparent, and this is pre-Mosaic law. Right? So it's really important to get that through our heads. They don't have the Mosaic Law. All right. You know the story. Moses grows up in the court of Pharaoh. They tried to kill all the, the, the firstborn males, and he escapes by the, the Pharaoh's daughter accidentally finding him by the river and then choosing to raise him as a prince in the court. And one day he decides, I'm going to go out and see my people. Well, the reason he knew his people was because... Um, his sister Miriam had said, oh, I know a, a Hebrew woman, his mother, who is nursing, and she can nurse him for you and, and wet nurse him and, and raise him for you. So his mother got to raise him in, the, in the, um, the palace. And one day, knowing that he's a Hebrew, probably because his mom told him, he says, I want to go out and see what's going on with them. I mean, he's grown. He's a full man, and he decides, I want to go see what's going on with them. I mean, just think how oblivious his life must have been in the court not doing anything related to the Hebrews. And then one day he says, I'm going to go out and do it. And he sees the slavery and the abject brutality. And he specifically sees a slave master whipping a Hebrew man mercilessly. And he looks around and he kills him. He buries him in the sand. But people saw. And the next day he comes out and the Jews say, are you going to kill us too? He starts to interdict in their, their issues. And he goes, uh-oh people know. And so he runs away. He runs into Midian. Okay, here's the next big turning point. 
Exodus 23 and 24, God hears the cries of his people enslaved in Egypt and sets off his plan to free them. Years passed and the king of Egypt died, but the Israelites continued to grow under their burden of slavery. They cried out for help and their cry rose up to God. God heard their groaning and he, and he remembered his covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He looked down on the people of Israel and knew it was time to act. This is the NLT, and I think that's a little novel, the way it was interpreted in the end there. But my point in bringing this up is, yes, Moses ran away. Moses didn't stand up and say, I'll do something, I'll lead a rebellion, I'll do... No, he ran away. He wasn't doing squat. <laughs> God looked down, he heard, and he chose to act. He remembered what he had promised, not that he had ever forgotten it, that's not what it means here. It's just... It's the time to do something about it. Just like when he said, at just the right moment in time, Jesus came. Just the right moment in time, he's going to do something. And he acts on this with regards to Moses. He, he catches Moses out in the wilderness. He's a, a shepherd, and he lights a bush on fire, and it's not burning up. And he talks to him from it and says, I've heard what's going on. And I'm going to deal with this. And at the bottom part here of that passage, in verse 7, he says, Then the Lord said to him, I've certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I am aware of their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them. I have come down to rescue them. Moses isn't rescuing them. God is rescuing them from their slavery. So that brings us to the law. Guys, I'm not going through the whole story of what happened out there uh, in the wilderness after oh, the ten plagues and all that kind oh, of stuff. Because that's where I started. Right. Jim, Jim's going to do something on that on the, on the next set of things we're doing. I'm going to jump in now to the law and talk to you about what the law says about slavery. The law is very thorough, uh, very replete. There is so much in there, but in general you could say as far as slavery goes and how it's treated under the law, there are three cases. There's cases of Hebrews having Hebrew slaves, the case of Hebrews with Gentile slaves, and then Gentiles with Hebrew slaves. This is all in the confines of the promised land. So Israel is in their land. They have the land. It's been given to them. They've taken full possession of it. They're, they're sorted out. Um, that's how it's going to be worked out as they live it. Now, now they get this before they get there. The, the laws are, are written and given. First, they get the Ten Commandments. It's unclear exactly when the rest of the laws were given, but you can read through them in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. But there's these three categories. So in the first one, a Hebrew could sell himself as a slave to another Hebrew, but they only served for six or so years because in the seventh year they were to be freed and uh, in the year of Jubilee. But not only that, they weren't to be treated like slaves. God explicitly says, um, down in 42 in the center there, the people of Israel are my servants, whom I bought, uh, brought out of the land of Egypt, so they must never be sold as slaves. Show your fear of God by not treating them harshly. So if there's a financial situation and a Jewish man says, I can't pay my debts, he could sell himself to another Jewish man who would hire him, and it and literally says in another passage that he's to treat him like a a bond servant, a hired man who's getting his pay. 
not only that, when they were to release them at the end of their, their time, whether they paid it off for the year of Jubilee, they were given supplies. They were given money. They were given clothing. They were given cattle. And anything else they need to provision them so that when they go out there, they could get set up and not go back into the same situation. The plan of God is just so beautiful in dealing with our our follies and our foolishness and catastrophes, right? So there there is one, and I'll deal with it later. It's the harsh one uh, at the very bottom. Slaves could choose to stay with their masters as a servant for life. Remember that. We'll come back to that. All right, so that's the first case. Second case, Hebrews could buy Gentiles as slaves that were in the land. Some of this is a problem because the Jews didn't do what they were told. There, there were people that they were told, wipe out. The wrath of God is filled up against them. Eliminate them. And it's a really hard thing to deal with right now, especially as we're seeing people that are trying to exercise a genocidal effect against the Jews. I mean, Hamas and all these others want to eliminate the Jews, period. They don't want to just get rid of their country. They want them all dead. So here God tells them, I'm giving you this land and there are inhabitants in it, and my wrath is filled up. I'm done with them. Eliminate them. And I'm making a place for you. And what I want to say about that is every day that every man wakes up, women too, and you're given all the good things that God gives in his providence, that is a warning to each of us that we should turn from our sins and follow the true and living God. No matter whether we've heard the gospel or not, there is no excuse because we're all born with the image of God imprinted on us and we should know that we should worship him, that that's our job. And we all rebel at this and all these people for all those years chose other gods did foolish things, bowed down to sticks and stones, and refused to come after the true and living God, and they did wickedness. And God said, I've had enough of it. And so they were to wipe them out. They didn't wipe them all out. And they also allowed some foreigners to come into the country. So amongst that group of people that weren't wiped out, or people who come into Israel who say, hey, there's a good thing going on there. I want to be there too. They could take slaves from them. They didn't have the same kind of um, warning about being kind to them. But they did have admonitions not to be harsh to them. So the regulation wasn't equivalent to a Jew with a Jewish slave. They don't say that these foreigners are the people of God and they should be treated kindly because God took them out of Egypt. That's not what it is. But you are to treat them with respect and kindness and not be abusive towards them. The whole issue of slavery and owning people it's such a rough one because uh, our mindset is like that's so bad and evil and it's done and and I'll argue that from a New Testament mindset we understand that clearly God is saving people in the midst of where they were and the place that they were slavery was a hard fact of life and God is regulating it here he's keeping harsh things from happening by regulating how they behave Now, could he have regulated slavery out of the picture altogether? Yes, he could. Did he? No, he didn't. And and I think we'll see later why. All right, the last one was a Gentile with Hebrew slaves. And this is where it gets dicey. If you were a Jew and you owed money to a Gentile or somebody and you needed somebody to pay your debt, you could sell yourself to a Gentile who lived in the land. That Gentile was still required to treat you 
like the, the Jew having a Jewish slave. They were supposed to be respectful too. And there was an added provision that if you sold yourself to a Gentile, anybody from your family could come and buy you back. And all the provisions for the year of Jubilee still applied, even though it was Gentile and he wasn't necessarily following the, the law of God or, or the truth. The, down at the bottom, read this one, 53. The foreigner must treat them as workers hired on a yearly basis. So even if you sold yourself to a foreigner in the land, they had to treat you a Jew like that. So there's the broad spectrum of how God treated the categories of Jews in Israel. Anybody have any thoughts on that? Because I'm going to get into some of the specifics now. Eric and I were talking about this one. One of the things that the law said that if a person was caught in a crime and they couldn't pay back uh, what they had, it's, it literally says in Exodus 23.3, they must be sold as a slave to pay for it. They must be sold. We do something like that now when criminals are arrested and they're put in jail. Uh, they're made to work. Um, probably not like like um, this. Uh, I mean, I've been to a prison before and I've seen where people work and, and Eric and I have talked about it. There's, they're forced to work and they get some little pittance of pay for it. But it's part of the legal process and the judge says you're to go to this prison and you're to do your time and you're to pay back your debt to society. Um, is it slavery? Technically, no. Um, are they treated like slaves? Probably. Um, but it's the result of conviction of, of actual crimes. We're still not allowed to mistreat our prisoners. And if they're mistreated, that's wrong. And that goes against the law of God. And I'm dating myself by having a picture of Beretta down there. And you younger folks are like, who is that guy? But there was a show uh, where this guy, Tony Beretta, he was a private eye, and he always would say, don't do the crime if you can't pay the time. And he had a cockatiel. I don't know why, but that was 70s TV. All right, man-stealing. Now, this is closer to what we think of as traditional slavery. And scripture is explicit. Read Exodus 21 16 there. Kidnappers must be put to death whether they are caught in possession of their victims or have already sold them as slaves. Notice the, the implication there that people are being kidnapped to be sold as slaves. And if somebody does that, they're to put them to death when they catch them, whether they still have them in their possession or they can prove that they were selling slaves. Uh, William Hendrickson said, um, accordingly, when in more recent centuries some have tried to defend modern slavery by appealing to Moses, they have done so without any shadow of warrant. And I think that this one passage alone should have been enough to shut the mouths of anybody claiming to be a Christian and participating in chattel slavery. Chattel slavery is where people are identified usually ethnically and they're captured specifically to be laborers, to be owned by somebody else. And the Mosaic Law says, no, you cannot steal someone and make them your slave. Now, could you capture them in war? Yes, you could. And, and that did happen. But going out and expressly saying, I'm going to go get me some slaves to work the land for me. Mm -mm. No, you were to be put to death for that. There's no room for it. 
So this is getting to the hard parts. So that, that one that we talked about, about the man wanting to become a slave for life. So here's the condition. Um, a Hebrew man uh, sells himself into slavery to a master. It doesn't dictate whether it's a Hebrew master or a Gentile one. He gets set free at the end of his time that he's, he's done, your jubilee or whatever. While he's in there, if he came in with a wife, he gets to leave with the wife and their children. If, while he's in there, his master gives him a wife and they have children, at the end of his indentured service, he gets to leave, but the master still owns the wife and the children. So, if that's too harsh for the man and he doesn't like that, he can choose to be a slave for life. Say, I want to stay with my master, and he gets to keep his wife and children, but he stays a slave. I don't like that. I'm uncomfortable with that. But I'm a sinful man, and I'm not God, and I don't live in a world where slavery is a hard, cold fact. I think the way to think about this is the way we talked about in the Sermon on the Mount, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. At that time, what would happen is if I went over to Monica's house and beat her up and knocked her teeth out, at that time, Sam could get ticked off and say, oh yeah, he could come over and kill me in most settings. And then there would be a family feud between the Bondrovs and the Furlongs that would go on for centuries probably. But what God was doing when he implemented this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, he said, only commensurate punishment. So if I knock Monica's teeth out, Sam gets to knock my teeth out, and no more. And it's actually a kindness, and it's, it's implying laws that govern behavior so things don't spin out of control, so things don't escalate. It's got to be commensurate. And I think that we we have to think about the laws of slavery in the same sort of way. There were no laws before the Mosaic Law. There was nothing that governed how people treated their slaves. God is going out of his way to tell us to be kind and restrain yourself with regards to slaves. There were no laws before. God gave laws. This is a game changer. I mean, it really is a game changer. Now, he gave some specific rights to slaves. And these were not rights that slaves had anywhere else in the world. So in Exodus 21, um, it says a slave has the right to keep a wife. He also has the right not to be sold to foreigners. So if he sold himself to a, a Jewish man, the Jewish man can't trade him to a foreign man. He can be adopted into the family uh, or, or marry into the family and not be a slave anymore, but be part of that family. Female slaves that were taken as wives can't be discarded when another wife is chosen. God sets out laws and says, if this man bought a slave, makes her his wife, and then he picks another wife later, he's got to provide for her everything, including conjugal visits and a place in the family. He doesn't get to set her aside. They, they have the right to food and clothing. Also, uh, corporal punishment was limited. Um, you couldn't just go off and do whatever you wanted to your slaves. God had very specific things about that. If a slave escaped, it was illegal to return him to, to his master. If you find him and he's escaped, you couldn't, as a Jew, 
send him back to his master. Isn't that interesting? Think of that in light of Philemon. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many implications that are happening here that, that play on the um, Philemon thing. And slaves had the right to enter the covenant. They could, they could follow after Jehovah. Jim, we're going to talk about Jehovah and, and next time. They could be circumcised and join the covenant and be part of the people of God. So those are a bunch of laws that, um, that people are given. Now I'm going to turn the corner real fast and I want to go through this and talk about what happened after the Mosaic Law. So Mosaic Law, they're in the land. There's kings and kings and kings. The kingdom divides. They do wicked in the north. They're mostly better in the south. Um, the prophets keep coming and saying, you guys have messed up again and again and again. You keep going after the high places, the prostitutes, the foreign religions. You're doing all that stuff, and I told you not to do that. And all, my Mosaic Law was conditional. You obey, and you get the land. And you get to stay. If you don't obey, you don't get it. You could be kicked out and done with. And he keeps being kind to them. Keeps being kind to them. Now, Isaiah is this wonderful microcosm. I've heard people call it the, the gospel in the Old Testament. It is glorious. I, I just had this wonderful experience. Jim and I were talking about how... Um, you know, you get along in age in Christ and you study and you find more and more things you never saw before. I spent, oh, probably th- two hours going through Isaiah from the beginning through the 50s, just reading it in order. And I, I think we suffer sometimes by picking out the favorite parts that we like to read. We love to read uh, Isaiah 53. We love Isaiah 40. We love 11. We love 6. And then we forget the in-between parts. But the story is glorious. And it has a lot to do with slavery. He's promising, you guys are going to be exiled because of your sin. But I'm going to send a Messiah. And this is where the eschatology gets tough because he says, I'm going to bring you back. But as we're going to see in a minute, the real goal here is to save you from sin. In Isaiah, I'm going to go fast on this. Isaiah 9, you can read it as you as you will, but look at verse 4 there. For you will break the yoke of their slavery. He's referring to the Messiah. What's the purpose of the Messiah? He's going to come and he's going to break the yoke of their slavery. Notice this, this passage here. Um, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Remember that? We studied that not too long ago. Jesus proclaimed that this was fulfilled in him. So we know right now, as we're looking at this, Jesus will break the yoke of the slavery. That's who's being referred to here. The the threads are strong. They just keep going. Another promise. Look at the very bottom there, that last uh, portion there. Monica, will you read the all caps part down there? You will free the captives from prison, releasing those who sit in dark dungeons. So notice that. We, we probably don't pay that much attention to that because we're all enamored with um, the part up here, th- uh, three. He will not crush the weakest reed or put out a flickering candle. We all know that one. But down at the bottom there, he's saying, this is what the Messiah is going to do. He's going to set the, the captives free from prison. He also seasoned this with little bits that talk about it really being sin. Eugene, you want to read um, 21 and 22 there? Pay attention, O Jacob, for you are my servant, O Israel. I, the Lord, made you, and I will not forget you. I have swept away your sins like a cloud, and scattered your offenses like the morning mist. 
Oh, return to me, for I have paid the price to set you free. And these are prophecies that God's speaking in time, um, in, in a form of the, the verb that sounds like it's already done. Which, you know, when you think about God being outside of time, whatever he says he's going to do, in, in his sense, it's done. It's as good as done. Now, there is a, a rolling out chronologically of time, and these ha- things have not happened yet, but God's speaking as if it's happened already. And he's saying that he's going to sweep away their sins. Now look at the next one, 51. This is what the Lord says. Was your mother sent away because I divorced her? So he's talking about the, the precursor of Israel. Did I sell you as slaves to my creditors? Did God owe somebody and have to sell his people as slaves? No. You were sold because of your sins. Speaking of the exile, why are they going into exile? Was it because God owed Babylon something or Assyria? No. He's sending them there because their sins. And your mother, too, was taken away because of your sins. He weaves this whole story in here. Yes, you're going to come back from these places, but it's all about sin. And they didn't like that. All right. So here's the sudden shocking reveal in 52. (laughs) It's not going to come the way they thought. They wanted uh, a military coup. They wanted to kick out the bad guys. They wanted all that. That's what they wanted the Savior to be. Look what God said. See, my servant will prosper. He will be highly exalted. But many were amazed when they saw him. His face was so disfigured, he seemed hardly human. And from his appearance, one would scarcely know who that man was. What? It's like all these promises about you're coming back to the land, I'm going to redeem you, and then this. And you guys know what's coming next. Okay, this is where we're going to end today, but we're going to read this through. Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised, and we did not care. Yet it was our weakness he carried, it was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in the stream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone. But he was buried like a a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. That when his life that when his life is made an offering for sin, will have many descendants, and he will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. He will 
He will seize all that is accomplished by his anguish. He will be satisfied and become... And because of. And because, sorry, it's blurry. Um, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he, what was that word? Exposed. Exposed himself to death. Exposed himself to death. He was crushed, counted counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many. Bore the sins of many and Interceded. Interceded. <laughs> For rebels. For rebels. Sorry. This this is the crescendo of Isaiah. This is the big reveal. The substitutionary savior who sub, who subs himself in and pays the price that's owed by the sinners. And that's what is going on in this time leading up to the New Testament. So when I get up again, I'll talk about the New Testament, and I think you're going to see the echoes of what are being said here in the mentioning of slavery as we go into the New Testament. Mm-hmm. There'll, there'll be this whole, this whole thing about redemption. It's not just redeeming us, you know, buying us. It's buying us out of the slavery of our sin and the guilt of it. It's a horrible thing that God had to do, and we were happy as clams sinning away. We were okay with Satan being our taskmaster. Sometimes we'd curse him, but doggone it, we got to sin and we liked that. And, and God took the action. God said, I'll save them. God said he'll, he'll remove the stain and buy them back and set them free. Thank you for joining us in listening to this Sunday School session. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org.